0: So, yesterday afternoon, I read the pointing out instructions from Padmasambhava. And he made some extraordinary claims there in his preface to the pointing out instructions, saying these are pointing to a dimension of reality that's called by a wide variety of names, including Atman, but the middle way view, emptiness. Tathagata Garba, Alaya, Perfection of Wisdom, all pointing to that, all pointing to that. And then we saw there were two phases of the pointing out instructions, where he would simply say, kind of challenge you, in terms of what do you mean, what do you mean, and just observe your mind, just do it, just do it, right? So there was a whole sequence there, which is observe, observe very clearly. Uh, look. But the second phase of his pointing out instructions was he'd pose a question, or he pose a hypothesis really, why not call it that? And say, is it, is, is that so or not? Is it, is it that way or not? Observe your mind. So the first part one can say is shamatha, observe your mind, well look that's, that's shamata. just look shamatha. But when you pose a question and then you're being asked to report is it that way or not? Well then clearly you just stepped over into Vipassana. So pointing out instructions that he gave with, in such an inviting way, because you remember one of the most remarkable names he gave for what he's pointing out was ordinary consciousness. So not something of the future, not something you'll achieve one day after you've achieved shamatha, etc., etc. No, ordinary consciousness, the one you're experiencing right now, just look at that, you know, like that's sufficient. What else are you going to look at? You can't say, I don't like mine, I'm going to look at a better one. That's it, you know. Got to look at what you got, right? But it raises very, very interesting questions to my mind. And that is, when you do so, what do you see? How deeply do you penetrate? Do you simply see the the luminous and cognizant aspect of consciousness, which is very good, by means of which you then identify the relative nature of consciousness? Did you look so deeply that you look right through your mind, your psyche, and penetrated right to the substrate consciousness? Could you, because it's right there, right where you're looking, it is, right? Could you penetrate that deeply? Could you, the emptiness of your own mind, the emptiness of your own awareness, that's right there too, that's not someplace else. So you're looking right where the emptiness of your own awareness is. Did you, did you realize the emptiness of your own awareness? And, of course, what right, well, all of this is, is Rigpa, primordial consciousness. Uh, did you identify Rigpa? So the instructions are just wonderfully simple and complete, actually. Pointing out instructions. Can you look once? Can you look once? Is that sufficient? And most of us say, "Well, no, you have to look multiple times." But then why? I mean, if all of these—your consciousness, your substrate consciousness, the emptiness of your consciousness—brick, but if they're all there right now. Why not just look and say, Oh good, I'm a Vijidara? No, I think no, I'm a Buddha. Thank you. That was my, That was a very nice trip. Vidi Vichy vidi Viti 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 Vinci. I came, I saw, I conquered. Boom, boom, boom. I'm a conqueror. You know, I'm a Buddha. That would be very nice. It doesn't work that way for most people. Those are called the simultaneous ones, remember? They hear the teachings, boom, they gain realization. So if you're one of those people, you can leave now. Because you'll just be embarrassed me, you know, kind of pretending to listen to me. and you know, Okay, you've not left. <laughs> what are the obscurations? When we look, why do we not see? It's a serious question, a reasonable question. If Ritpa's there, right where you are, and you're looking right at it, if you don't see it, if you're not a Vidya right there, if you, don't, if you don't realize right there that your own mind is Dharmakaya, Dharmakaya realizing its own nature is Dharmakaya, why not? It's right there. And of course, there are things in the way. They're called obscurations. So let's run through them briefly. Conative obscurations. Conative, as in desire. You might think, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. You said, observe my mind. Quit telling me what to do. <laughs> I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm trying to make money. I'm trying to get ahead. I'm trying to succeed. Make something of myself. Why should I look at my mind? I don't see any profit in that. It'll be boring. I don't need to. I don't want to. I don't see any point. So, or I'll check, yeah, that was it. No, that wasn't even interesting. I'm finished. And move right on. So that, that's a big observation. If you have no interest, no aspiration, and not just to check it out for five seconds, but for, you know, like 12 hours a day for a year or five or ten. If you don't have the aspiration, that's not going to happen. Right. So nobody to kind of stumbles into becoming a Vidyadhartha. There has to be a great aspiration. We've we seen out know, the, the hairs, hipolating, what was that word? I can't remember. But, you know, hairs standing on there and tears flowing your eyes, incredible passion, asking hundreds of times for blessings and so forth. Um, those are the people who gain really profound realization. A cognitive passion. But if that's not there, if there's no renunciation, no bodhicitta, then it's not going to happen. You can just read those pointy instructions all you like. It's never going to happen. No renunciation? Forget about it. You'll be much too busy. So that would be, that'll be, that'll be the first obscuration. The second one is kind of like the duh kind of obscuration. And that is you try to do that, and the mind is just like a, a beehive swarming with bees of noise, of obsessive, compulsive ideation. You're trying to look at your mind, and you just have all these flies in your face. You know, memories, thoughts, emotions, blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of like, ah, this is, this is, I don't like doing this, you know because you just can't do it. Your mind is so derailed. Three seconds here, two seconds there. Spin-off, spin-off, spin-off. So attentional obscurations, they're big. They're enormous. That's why, Of course, that's that's why we have, first of all, motivation, 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 refuge, bodhicitta. And then we go right to developing attention skills, shamatha. But even if your attention is, let's say, at least reasonably good, even if you have a real interest... And even if your attention skills are rather refined. Is that any guarantee? That you'll really gain insight when you're looking. That you will not only look, but you will see. You'll not only see, but you'll have insight, which is in Tibetan, hlak tong, special seeing. Some special, some extraordinary seeing. And it's quite clear there's another whole layer of obscuration. And it's cognitive. Cognitive. This is ignorance, it's delusion. And so in, in terms of ignorance hyphen delusion, the root mental affliction, we have two types. Conate, we're born with it. As sentient beings, we're born with a certain whole dimension of grasping, reifying to the self, reifying other phenomena, reifying other people. We can't blame anybody on it. We can't blame DNA or genetics or parents or culture or materialists or anything else. Born with it, that's conate, Right? And even though, and the extraordinary hypothesis, and it's been demonstrated to be true many times, is that even though it's kone, even though we're born with it, it's not hardwired. It's not intrinsic. It's not indelible. That's, if it were, then dharma would be kind of like, it would be reduced to a therapy. Not, there'd be nothing more to it than try to get along in samsara and not be beat up too much. But no, this is not, as I said, not just simply therapy. And if you don't like the warfare met, m- m- metaphor, and I understand why you might not, well, this is going for complete healing. How about that one? It's a softer image. The total, irreversible, complete healing and illumination of the mind. Right? So we have the conate ones, but then we have Marikba, which I translate as speculative, speculative ignorance. And this is learned, it's acquired ignorance. It's acquired ignorance. And that is, imagine a person, I would say just on the whole, here's a great big generalization, which I'll stand by. The belief system of scientific materialism consists uniformly of acquired delusion. Nobody's born with it. Nobody's born with it. That's not conate. But you get educated, you get introduced to it, especially you're told that this is in, indivisible from science. If you love science, then you have to go with the belief system of scientific materialism. Uh, there was a great marketer for that. He was, he, was a, he was a good biologist, but an incredibly good propagandist and marketer, Thomas Huxley, the Darwin's bulldog. And had it not been for him, the whole course of science for the last 150 years might have turned out very well. But he made sure, starting in England, spreading to America, and then the rest of the world, he made sure he was incredibly effective. One man could bring about such enormous results. He made sure, and in, in first in Great Britain and the United States, and then went global, especially to communist countries... Marx attended his lectures and loved them. Yeah, he attended six lectures of him, loved him. And that is that the only way you can you can do do science, teach science, understand science is within the context of scientific materialism. He did that almost single-handedly. It was an amazing propaganda feat. Uh, he died deeply depressed. But he certainly spread his virus before he died. So cognitive. Back in 1860s, there was a very brilliant German scientist. He was very very much a polymath. He worked in biology and physics, chemistry, Hermann von Helmholtz. In the 1860s, he formalized what was called the, well, the, the, that is, mathematically formalized the, the principle of conservation of energy. It's a simple thing. I'm not going to go into it, but we have some really good stuff to deal with this morning. But he did something very important, had an enormous impact. This is 1860. This is just when Darwin's theory of evolution was taking off, really getting popular, uh, with Thomas Huxley's enormous help. But um, the closure principle says that all of, all of the energy in the universe is conserved, which means you never get anything new, and you never lose anything. So there we are. But this means, and the closure principle is, and this means here's the enormous implication of this, the 19th century class of physics, that Anything that has causal efficacy in the universe is itself physical. If there is anything that is not physical, it cannot possibly have any impact, have any causal efficacy whatsoever in the real physical universe. Because that would imply adding new energy, getting something from nothing, cannot happen, never happens. So the only things that have any causal efficacy in the entire universe are themselves physical. So God, if God still exists, that's fine, but you're a tourist. You're, an outs- you're a bystander. You're just an observer, but you can't do anything, God. You're- now, this is deism. It's what Einstein believed in and uh, a number of others as well. But it's not only God that becomes literally irrelevant, c- c- cannot intervene, unless God is made of molecules, which actually nobody believes as far as I know. Uh, unless you're a pantheist, I suppose. Um, But it also means your mind. One of two implications immediately follows, necessarily follows, if you take this, and many, many people do. Either your mind is physical, which means, of course, it's got to be the brain or some specific type of brain function, in which case the only way to study it authentically, insightfully, is brain science and study its effect behavior, physical, physical. That's the only way. So, if mind is physical, then it can have causal efficacy. It's physical; conservation principle is is, is maintained. But then this means, of course, you're a robot, because this your brain is it operates entirely according to laws of physics, chemistry, biology, which are amoral, mindless, and you're a robot. There's no such thing as will; it's just brain activity. And so, the notion of will, decision, choice, responsibility, out the window. You're a robot. That's an inevitable conclusion, if your mind is simply your brain or brain activity. And there's nothing influencing it that's non-physical. On the other hand, if your mind is not physical, then it's an epiphenomenon, and it's along for the ride, but it has no causal efficacy of its own, because it's non-physical. It cannot possibly influence the brain in any way. So it may be non-physical, but then it's non-measurable. But it also has no impact, has no causal efficacy. So once again, oh, you're a robot. Because your mind is just fluff. Your mind is just like a vapor going along for the ride. But it, all the activity, all the, the engine is from the brain up. So one modern, very very well-known neuroscientist who studied meditation a lot said years ago, the only way to understand meditation is by, underlying, by understanding its underlying neural mechanisms. Okay, So the meditators don't really know what meditation is about, because they don't know anything about underlying neural mechanisms. Find, tell me a Geshe, show me a yogi. They can start give you a good discourse on the hippocampus. Good luck with that. <laughs> so the meditators actually are clueless, really, about what's going on in meditation, because they don't know what's doing it. They're seeing the fluff. They're seeing the epiphenomenal experiences. But what's really doing it is the brain. And so, you know, Move over, meditators, brain scientists come in, we'll take over now, because we'll actually study what's really going on. So you can be either an old robot or a robot, but you can have your choice. No, you actually, you can't, uh, because you don't have any choices. Either way, you have no choices. It's either brain chemistry or it's, oh, it's a brain chemistry. It's being chemistry either way. Your mind either doesn't exist or it's ineffectual, then who cares? It's kind of like a semantic difference. So if you have that view, and many, 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 many mind scientists do, in fact, among the scientific community, from one type of discipline to another, those, it was, a poll was done recently, the, the most materialistic group of scientists among all the fields are cognitive scientists, the most materialistic. It's quite interesting because among all the fields of science, those are the ones who know the least about matter. It's quite remarkable. Because they don't study 20th century physics. And hardly any of them understand it. Where some of the least materialistic are the physicists. Like Thomas Hertog, I quoted extensively. Boy, that was really, 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 really not materialistic. There he is a protege of Stephen Hawking. He did his PhD under Stephen Hawking at Cambridge. That's quite remarkable. So if you look at the history of science, we see, let's say, Galileo science, let's say physics, was in its infancy. And it was a brilliant birth. Kepler, Galileo. And then with Newton, it was in its childhood, a really healthy child, right? We get to late 19th century where classical mechanics has really come into its fullness. And people of the stature of Lord Kelvin said, we're pretty much finished. We've under- we now understand the nature of the universe. There's not much more to be done. S- physics at that time was like a teenager. Mom, dad, you don't know anything. I know everything you don't know anything and neither is a grandpa he's an old fogey none of you old people do I know everything it's adolescent really adolescent you know. and now we find with Thomas Hertog Stephen Hawking Anton Seininger John Wheeler Andre Linde, Paul Davies we're seeing them casting off materialism and coming into adulthood it's quite impressive right Adulthood. Meanwhile, the cognitive sciences are still in infancy. And pretending as if they understand consciousness, when frankly they don't have a clue. But they're pretending as if what they don't understand doesn't matter. Until there's one who breaks the mold. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. He's mainstream, otherwise he would not be so interesting. If he's just kind of like an outsider like me, eh, then not so interesting. But full professor, Cognitive Science at University of California, Irvine, got his PhD at MIT. doesn't get any better. His name is Donald Hoffman. And I just read an interview of him. But I want to proceed this just briefly with a nice juicy quote from The Foolish Dharma of an Idiot Clothed in Mother and Feathers where Duchum Lingba, as he does in all of his treatises, says, Before you set out, on the path, whether it's shamatha, whether it's exploring the mind, and so forth, there's something you need to get straight, first of all, right? Among body, speech, and mind, you have to determine, before you launch, you need to get straight on this one, otherwise you're gonna be screwed from the beginning. Among body, speech, and mind, which one's primary? If you don't know the right answer, or you've got the wrong answer, you may as well stay home. That's fine, have a nice day. But this path is just, you're not gonna get anywhere you have to know. Not by being documented, you have to investigate it. Which is primary? And here's the statement from the foolish drama of an idiot clothed in mother feathers. It was a prophecy that Dujum Lingba received from a little boy who appeared in his dream. And the little boy told him, the body is like a paper bag blown by the wind. That body includes your brain, of course. Your brain is like a paper bag blown by the wind. Speech is like the sound of an air passing through a pipe. Come and gone, right? The mind is the creator of both samsara and nirvana. Among these three, identify which is primary. If you still think the body is primary, that's fine. But this this path is just not open to you at all. And so it was physics. Hermann von Helmholtz, the great triumphs of Newtonian mechanics, classical physics, that brought the... that that enslaved modern cognitive science from the very beginning. It began in about 1875 or so, right in the heyday of the adolescence of physics, when there was so much, may I say, adolescent pomposity. We're pretty much finished here. There's no reason to go into physics. You'll just be picking up the breadcrumbs that we've let, you know, that have slipped off the table. Go into some other field, but we're done here. This was, of course, just years before relativity theory, quantum mechanics, the whole revolution of 20th century physics. But there it was, this mechanistic mind-killing, dehumanizing worldview of scientific materialism, that was dominant in Western academia when the mind sciences arose, the time of William James and so forth. And so it was strapped from the beginning. I would say to be a little bit tough, Thomas Hertog set the mind sciences back by 150 years. Because he ensured that if they step outside of scientific materialism, they'll be excommunicated. And so... It's taken a long time, but finally, here's the first one I've seen. A mainstream, very bright, highly educated researcher in the cognitive sciences doing cutting-edge research who has addressed this question, body, speech, and mind, or let's make it simple, brain and mind. Let's make it simple, matter and mind, which is primary? So here he is, professor of cognitive science, and this is an interview, and the name of the interview was The Case Against Reality. And reality, as you'll see, turns out to be true existence. Ready? And, you, of course, you'll have the, the whole interview is, will be on the website. But I read this and it really gave me hope. Because I've been waiting for a mainstream cognitive scientist to show some real appreciation of 20th century physics, in which they don't get any training at all. How they appreciate it? They never study it. They stop at 19th century physics and figure, we're done. And whatever happened to 20th century physics, not relevant. Why would it be relevant? They consider what they don't understand to be irrelevant, which is not a sign of science. Here's what Donald Hoffman... Okay, breath of fresh air. The central lessons of quantum physics... Here's a, a cognitive scientist now talking about quantum physics. Hallelujah! The central lesson of quantum physics is clear. There are no public objects sitting out there in some pre-existing space. Boom. As the physicist John Wheeler... Oh, Peter Pat goes my heart. <laughs> You're quoting John Wheeler? Hallelujah! Oh, I I just burst with happiness. Okay, what did he say? What did he say? Let me let me know. As the physicist John Wheeler put it, useful as it is under ordinary circumstances to say that the world exists out there, in quotes, independent of us, that view can no longer be upheld. Now Donald Hoffman's done his own research. He's not just piggybacking on the physicists and, and you know, he, like a cheerleader. He's doing a lot more than just applauding them. He's done some remarkable research himself on evolution and just evolutionary processes and how that has to do with knowing reality. And he's developed his own theory. It's a mathematical theory. And, he's, and he in a comment, every, everything here is a direct quote. He says the mathematical physicist Chetan Prakash proved a theory that I devised that says, according to evolution by natural selection, an organism that sees reality as it is will never be more fit than an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality but is just tuned to fitness. Never. Do you need to read that again? Yeah it's very dense i know the background because he gave, he gave this was an interview he gave a ted talk on this which is really outstanding but this is he fleshes it out more his theory which is now proven mathematically and it, and it, it's truly a mathematical theory he, and and it can be tested empirically and there we are according here's his theory now tested proven mathematically according to to evolution by natural selection just survival of the fittest adaptation all about um Survival and procreation. That's your program. Survive, procreate. That's it. That's what all of evolution is about. According to evolution, by natural selection, an, an, an organism that sees reality as it is, so you've got two types of organism. One type of organism sees reality as it is. Another type of organism is programmed entirely just to survive, having nothing to do with knowing reality as it is. Okay? So you have these two options. It's a mathematical division, right? An organism that sees reality as it is will never be more fit than an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality but is just tuned to fitness. Never. And that is the whole course of natural selection, including genetic mutation and so forth, has really nothing to do with organisms adapting, evolving to see reality more and more clearly. It has, it's an independent variable. It has nothing to do with that. Evolution, as currently understood, and this man is right on the cutting edge of the research, is so that evolution has nothing to do about seeing reality as it is. It has only to do with surviving and procreating. And that has nothing to do with seeing reality as it is. Right. And so if there are two organisms, one is more fit to survive, and the other one has deeper insight into reality, the latter one will not survive, or will have less chance of surviving. than the one is just dog-eat-dog, dog dog and is you know, really very well-primed to survive. So this is very interesting right there. Because if the newer Darwinists, that's what they're called, people who are absolutely following Darwin, and then simply augment that with genetics and neuroscience, and say that now we've told the whole story. Evolution, genetics, neuroscience, that tells you everything you need to know about human existence, human nature, human mind, and so forth. It's all physical, and that's all there is to it. Many, many people like that, right? And all the skills we have, all the abilities we have, our emotions and so forth, all of this came through natural selection. If that's true, then it turns out that science has undermined its own credibility. Because the whole course of natural selection, which gave rise to scientists, has nothing to do with knowing reality as it is. So there's no reason to believe that science is accurate. Since we did not evolve to know reality as it is, we evolved to make babies and survive. So science is irrelevant, except insofar as it helps us survive, and procreate. But we did not evolve to know reality as it is. If evolution is the whole story, if science is, if the scientific community is to maintain its integrity, following this and in a, you know, taking into account this mathematical theorem, then you would have to posit an in. A separate variable saying, in addition to natural selection, there's something else going on that gives us a drive to know reality as it is. And it has nothing to do with evolution, and that's where credibility stands. In other words, the credibility of science stands outside of science. It's like Gödel's theorem. There are truths in any system that cannot be proven within the context of that system. It's a rough paraphrase, but it's not too bad. Now, how does that relate to 20th century science? If we go back to Helmholtz and Darwin and James Clerk Maxwell and Faraday, let alone back, going back earlier, in the, in the 19th century and earlier, scientists had very little prestige. You had much more prestige if you are a theologian or a business person. Theologian, you to God. Business person, lots of money. But the scientists didn't have much prestige, didn't have much money. Science wasn't expensive. Darwin was all self- um, self-funded. His whole voyage on the Darwin and so forth, he paid for it. Right? He was a pretty wealthy family. And the other ones, fair, like James Cook Maxwell, the greatest physicist after Newton, he's a theoretical physicist. He, needed, he, like Einstein, needed a, pat, a, pat and a, and a pencil. Right? Get to the 20th century, especially after the First World War, and then especially after the Second World War, and science is up to its eyeballs in money, You cannot do good 20th century science without lots of funding. Not possible. I mean, okay, theoretical physicists once here are there. They're like stars in the daytime. Everybody else needs lots of money. It was three and a half million dollars so far for the Shamata project. $850,000 for the research and CEB, cultivating emotional balance. Those are two little minnows in the pond, right? You can't do good science, which means you cannot get a reputation. You cannot make your way in scientific community without a lot of money coming in. And then, how do you establish yourself, get a reputation, and then get influence? Power, wealth, and prestige. That's how you really succeed in science. All of those are non-scientific influences. And so the really one can say, to be a bit tough, I'm willing to do that. You've noticed. <laughs> 20th century science is now really driven by evolution, rather than, I won't say rather than, but in fierce competition with the aspiration to know truth. If you really want to make your way ahead as a scientist, look where the money is. Don't look where your passion is. There may be no money there, which means you won't get any research done, which means you won't publish, which means you won't get tenure, which means you're going to be driving a taxi. If you want to be successful, go where the money is. If you want to be successful, find out who is really influential. If you want to be successful, find out who has status and getting their current which means that, that whole all of that has nothing to do with reality mm-hmm. knowing reality has nothing whatsoever to do with it has everything to do with survival and procreation surviving with academia and procreating a lot of gra- gra- grads and postdocs <laughs> and procreating a lot of papers 20th century was a mixed blessing The idea that what we're doing is measuring publicly accessible objects, the idea that objectivity results from the fact that you and I can measure the same object in the exact same situation and get the same results, it's very clear from quantum mechanics that that idea has to go. Physics tells us that there are no public physical objects out there independently of anybody's perspective. Not there. Then the interviewer, a man named Gefter, asked, or he made the comment, it doesn't seem like many people in neuroscience or philosophy of mind are thinking about fundamental physics. Never a truer word was said. Do you think that's been a stumbling, bo- stumbling block for those trying to understand consciousness? <laughs> yes, I did pay him $1,000 to ask that question. <laughs> I wish. No, he did it all for free. I'm so glad, you know. And Hoffman responds, I think it has been. Not only are they ignoring the progress in fundamental physics, they're often explicit about it. They'll say openly that quantum physics is not relevant to the aspects of brain function that are causally involved in consciousness. They are certain that it's got to be classical properties of neural activity, which exist independent of any observers, spiking rates, connection strengths, at synapses, perhaps dynamical properties as well, these are all very classical notions under Newtonian physics, where time is absolute and objects exist absolutely. And then, then neuroscience are mystified as to why they don't make progress. <laughs> and they really have made no progress in 135 years regarding the actual nature of consciousness the origins of consciousness, how does the mind and and body interact, what are the potentials of consciousness, what's its role in nature, how does it originate in evolution, how does it revelate, nada, 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 nothing. No progress. They're mystified as to why they don't make progress. Gee, go figure. Who would have ever thought this out? They don't avail themselves of the incredible insights and breakthroughs that physics has made. Those insights are out there for us to use. And yet my field... He's a cognitive scientist. says, we'll stick with Newton, thank you. We'll stay 300 years behind in our physics. <laughs> now I'm the cheerleader. I'm em- and, he conclu- he, and he adds, I'm emphasizing the larger lessons of quantum mechanics. Neurons, brain, space, these are just symbols we use. They're not real. it's not that there's a classical brain that does some quantum magic. It's that there's no brain. Padmasambhava <laughs> 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 says again and again, in kind of ontological shock therapy, he said, phenomena, mitshing nawa, phenomena, while not existent, yet appear. The brain, while not existent, does appear, of course. Physical, classical classical object, he he chooses the word so carefully, I love it. Classical object, including brains, inherently existent brains, don't exist. So, this is a far more radical claim about the nature of reality and does not involve the brain pulling off some tricky quantum computation. So, even Penrose, the great mathematician, hasn't taken it far enough. But most of us, you know, were born realists. Good. That's conate. We're born metaphysical realists, that's true. But we're not born materialists. You have to learn that stupidity. And he's just unlearned it. I think he deserves the Nobel Prize for this, really. You broke out of the mold of 135 years of bogged down in the mud of materialism. Congratulations. He said, we're born physicalists. I'd have to debate on that. But, you know, if you're born in high school, when you first start learning brain science, biology, and so forth, isn't that, if that's when you're born, or junior high school, or school, when you just start early in science, if you consider that's when you're born, not in your mother's, mother's womb, from your mother's womb, but when you first start going to school, if that's when you're born, as somebody who's educated, yeah, if you're in the sciences, you are indoctrinated from the very beginning, as Thomas Huckley demanded and enforced, you will be born and raised as a physicalist you will be screwed from birth. This is a really, really hard one to let go of. And I know very good scientists, outstanding people, in many cases very ethical people. All of their education, especially in the mind sciences, all of their education has been absolutely saturated by the beliefs of scientific materialism, so saturated that they can't even see them because it's in the water they drink. And they find it almost impossible to doubt it. But he regards himself, he says, as a conscious, a conscious realist. I am postulating conscious experiences as ontological primitives. And that is, they're as fundamental as you get. They're not derivative of brain or matter or anything else. It's like Andre Linda, you remember? Space, time, matter, energy, consciousness, right down there in the bedrock. Foundations of reality. I'm counting conscious experiences as ontological primitives, the most basic ingredients of the world. I'm claiming that experiences are the real coin of the realm. The experiences of everyday life, my real feeling of a headache, my real taste of chocolate. (laughs) That really is the ultimate nature of reality. That's the first step. He's just identified between mind and matter, which is primary. Mind is, Consciousness is primary. Matter, brain, don't even exist except as symbols. It's John Wheeler. It's from bits. All of the things we got as objects out there, they're all derivative of the information we have about them. And there's no information without someone who's informed. But now, the next step, and this brings us to a meditation, we'll go a little bit late today, but not much, not a whole lot. That's the first point. But then if we go back to Dujjum Lingba, and it seems like his writings were made for the 21st century. He wrote them in the 19th. He wrote this stuff down during the heyday of mind-dumbing, mind-numbing, mind-eradicating scientific materialism. Vajra Essen came out right there during the time of Hel- uh, Hermann from Hel- Hel- Helmholtz, right during the time of Darwin, right during the time of Thomas Huxley, right where they were dumbing down all of Western civilization with this brainwashing that the only things that exist are you know, the physical. Here's Dujim Lingba coming out with these revelations. And they saying, these are for the future. That's what the Vajra Essen said. This is for the future. This will flourish in the cities of the West when the time comes. But boy, if his, his teachings had come out to come to Europe in the 19th century, they would have been squashed like a cigarette butt. By what nonsense is this? We already know the natural reality. You Tibetan hillbillies, what do you know? Yeah. So But the next step, once you've come to that, remember this. this is the, if you're interested in strategy, here's the strategy. The next, the next point is, okay, this mind is the all-creating sovereign, remember? This mind is the creator of samsara and nirvana, right? Good. Does the mind truly exist? Or is mind just one more symbol? One more name, having only a nominal status, that which creates all of samsara and nirvana. Is that real? If it's real, then it must really originate from someplace. It must be really located someplace, and it must really go someplace. Where, where, where? Nada, nada, nada. Now you're ready to roll. So he pulls you out of, this is Jujamalimba's strategy, he pulls you out of materialism. Like in a detox center. And that's what, and Donald Huffman got there. I I don't know that he has any exposure whatsoever to any Eastern thought or Buddhism. He just did it with straight science, really, really good science, including hardcore, heavy duty mathematics. And knows in evolution theory inside out, artificial intelligence, computer science, cognitive theory. He he's he got MIT version. He got, you know, got the best of the best in those regards. But once you've identified the mind as primary, he said, there it is, ontological primitive. Relative to which matter, brain, real matter, brains, and so forth do not exist, then he's moved from materialism in one like Superman, one, in one single leap, he goes from materialism to matra, mind only, where the only thing that is real is mind and everything else doesn't exist except as a symbol to the mind, right? But that's not enough for Dzogchen then you need to take that incisive razor of your intelligence and probe it right in on the nature of the sovereign, the all-creating sovereign, that which creates all of samsara nirvana. And you must know, does it inherently exist or not? Is it real or is it not? Is it any more real than a rainbow, an elementary particle, or a galaxy? And when you have insight into that, Now you're ready. You've been through your basic boot camp. You're ready to head out on the road. Okay? Yep. Let's have one session. It will be guided. With a passionate yearning to know reality as it is in order to be free, in order to free all beings. Then gently settle body, speech and mind in the natural state and calm the turbulence of the conceptual mind for a little while with mindfulness of breathing. Off all that ex- excess energy the excitation the turbulence with every out releasing all the way through to the end Come to that still point where your awareness simply comes to rest, loose, relaxed, free of grasping, and therefore still and naturally bright and clear. Let your eyes be gently open, evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you, without meditating on anything, without doing anything. Simply rest in the present moment. Rest in your most unmediated knowledge, your most intimate knowledge, of which you can be utterly certain. And that is, of course, your knowledge of being aware, of being conscious. Rest in that knowing of being conscious. Observe consciousness. Identify consciousness. Now, for a little while, let's initiate the oscillation of intensifying your awareness of awareness itself as you single-pointedly concentrate in upon that experience while withdrawing from all appearances to the mind. And then relaxing deeply, releasing releasing, loosening up. But without spacing out, gently, as if holding a thread, sustain the flow of awareness of awareness as you release your awareness into space. Then when you're ready, when you've relaxed a bit, Make the decision, if you will. Choose to arouse, focus, invert your awareness right in upon itself. Knowing it nakedly. Release again, setting the rhythm of your own choice. you invert your awareness, not only observe consciousness, but identify it. What are its salient characteristics? By what qualities do you identify it? And now probe more deeply. We'll cross the threshold over into a bit of Vipassana with a question. You presumably made the decision to engage in this practice, to invert and release your awareness. You've made the decision what the rhythm would be, how long the arousal and release. So now as you invert your awareness, Inverted deeply. Right into your experience of being the one who is the agent. The one who's doing the meditation. The one who made the decision. The one who's carrying out the decision of inverting and releasing awareness. I didn't do that to you. I just gave a suggestion. You made the decision, you enacted, you continue to enact it as you arouse and release. Invert your awareness now, not just upon consciousness, but upon your experience of being the one who's doing this, meditating, oscillating, focusing, releasing. But don't go for the easy answer. Don't invert your awareness in upon your experience of being the agent and then simply report what you didn't see. Too easy. Be prepared to report not what you didn't see but what you did see. What comes to mind? When you invert your awareness in upon yourself call it yourself, call it your mind That which is the agent, the subject in here that is controlling the attention, performing the meditation, what comes to mind when you invert in upon your experience of being the agent, attend closely, see what you see, identify what you see, and then relax, release. And again invert, seeing what you do see, and relaxing again. Continue the oscillation now, but in this deeper ontological probe into the very nature of the agent who performs the meditation and everything else you do. And when you identify what comes to mind, when you seek to observe yourself, your experience of being a self, the agent, when you identify what comes to mind, then you may ask, is that me? Is that the agent? Am I looking at the agent? Or is this a representation of the agent? An image of the agent? Or is it not? Examine closely until you come to a decisive insight or understanding. See that your breathing flows unimpededly, effortlessly, as if you were deep asleep, body and mind at ease. So you may recall a a quote that I just paraphrased when I was speaking here, but then I sought it out, I found the precise quote by Einstein, quoted by Heisenberg. And I'll just paraphrase it again, but Einstein said, it is in fact the theory that determines what we can observe. Remember that one? It's really potent, really, really potent. So this is why in Buddhism, It's so widely stated among really knowledgeable scholars that there is a sequence of hearing, thinking, and then meditation. Now, you may have preparation, which doesn't have to do in any particular worldview, like shamatha. Be a Christian, an agnostic. If you have sufficient motivation, good ethics, and so forth, you don't have to believe in this system of that. You don't have to be a theist or a polytheist or a non-theist or anything like that. But once you've made your mind a suitable vessel, then what can you observe? What can you observe? And what can you not observe because of the beliefs you already have? So when John Searle says that introspection is impossible, you know, well, clearly, if he's taking himself seriously, his theory is preventing him from exercising an ability with which he was born. He can't see it because the theory tells him that shouldn't exist. And one can easily imagine, I'm sure this happens a lot, people who are very committed materialists saying, oh, being introduced to Dzogchen, you know, some of the very popular, wonderful Dzogchen teachers are very happy to invite. You know, any, anybody come, whoever they are, Christian, materialist, whatever, and they, learn, they get point out instructions. You can easily imagine materialists saying, oh, I love this. Don't have to worry about reincarnation and all that mumbo-jumbo. I can just, just rest here. Oh, this is nice. Very, very good. It's so interesting to observe the brain's functioning as consciousness. What an amazing thing the brain is. Because you know? that's what I was observing. I was observing com- the, the subjective experience of complex interactions of neurons. Boy, I need to get back to the lab so I know what's really going on. You know? So what you can observe is largely determined by what you believe and don't believe and of course any non-belief implies a belief that's there instead so once you've prepared the mind with shamatha then Lingba strategy because again it, that's what it is be introduced to the view of middle way of emptiness and dependent arising introduced to the view and then you hear it you think about it and then you plunge and you start actually if if it stands up to the test of rigorous analysis. Once you've heard correctly, you've analyzed in depth, you've put it to the test, and the best possible test you can. You give every ounce of your intelligence to this. And if it stands up to the most critical analysis, then don't just teach it and write a book about it, for heaven's sakes. View it. View reality. Let your own view be the middle way view. Right. And once you've really Deconstructed your rei- your reivica- reification of yourself, your mind, and all objects, all appearances to the mind. Then you're introduced to this ocean view, the view of the great perfection. Right? That's pointy instructions. But you may you may be a great scholar. You may may study the seven treasures of um, of Longchenpa. You may study all the five treatises of Jujum Lingpa. You may study Longchenpa and so forth and so on. Uh, you know m- many other treatises, kando tik ying tik, and so forth and so on. You may become very knowledgeable by studying extensively the view. And some of the teachers I've studied with, like Kempo Nandru, amazing erudition, astonishing erudition, you know, tremendous, tremendously erudite in terms of his knowledge of the view and his clarity with which he expresses. He's brilliant. But once you've been introduced to the view, whether it's by very concise pointing out instructions or whether it's by much more elaborate presentation, then once you cut through very much like going from a non-lucid dream and having the discontinuity over to shifting and viewing the same dream now from the perspective of lucidity, from the perspective of being awake, once you've shifted that, you've you've had that kind of shift of the axis so that you're viewing the whole of reality now from the perspective of rikpa. now you have the view. That's the Dzogchen view to viewing reality from the respective rubric, but that's the Dzogchen view. And once you're viewing there, then your practice now becomes really, really simple. The great adepts, they say, now dispense with the ninefold activity. Dispense with all activities of nine kinds of the body, speech, and mind. And that's coarse, medium, and subtle. Dispense with all activity, all the activities that you embrace as a sentient being recitations, stage regeneration, mantras, prostrations, let alone chit-chat, idle gossip and all of that, let alone mind-wandering. There's coarse, medium and even subtle, like doing tummo, doing stage of completion practice. Dispense with all of it. Do not activate yourself in any way as a sentient being. Because that's incompatible with viewing reality from the perspective of Dharmakaya. And from this perspective, there's nothing to achieve. So don't strive. If you're viewing reality from the perspective of Dhammakaya, there's nothing to strive for, you're already it. So just get familiar with that. Rest there, go deeper, deeper, deeper. Now you're ready for open presence, open monitoring, just resting, being entirely open. Now you're ready. You're not a marmot, you're a Buddha. And you're viewing reality not from a marmot's perspective, but from dhammakaya's perspective. And then there's nothing to do, nothing to prefer, nothing to modify. There's nothing to desire, there's no effort, there's no modification, and there's no doing. When you're viewing reality from that perspective, your life has now become very simple. But until then, there's a fair amount to do. You might consider uh, cognitive intelligence, continue to go back to motivation, without which this all runs out of gas. Eight week, week, week's over. Mm. You, you watch your practice kind of... Get, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. But those eight weeks were really good. But now I'm so busy, 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 busy. That's because you prioritize other things. It's a real simple, simple answer for that. You're busy with other things rather than busy with dharma. Simple. So motivation, enormous. Go back to the four measurables. Go back to the four greats. Go back to bodhicitta. There's motivation. There's really deep motivation. That'll keep you going. So this practice, this is straight from Padmasambhava, natural liberation, We're probing in the nature of the agent. He said, that may be enough. That practice we just did, that he said, for those who are gifted, those with a little dust on their eyes, he said, this may be sufficient to cut right through to ripa. Could be. Right? If it's not yet, then keep on practicing, and you'll get more and more gifted as you go. You know, It's not just there are better people and worse people. They're more gifted because they've been practicing longer. Hola, so let's continue doing that throughout the course of the day.